Kate Inglis, and you're listening to From the Heart with Ed Hart. So my guest today, as you saw, is uh, Kate Inglis. She is a, a writer, a brand strategist, a photographer, a philanthropist, uh, a TED Talk speaker. I don't get to talk to many, too many people who have done TED Talks, so I'm excited to hear about that and how that started. And, and I loved your TED Talk on, on parallelism. And uh, it's a word I'd never really heard a whole lot until you said it. And I'm, I'm scared to death to interview you because you're amazing. And I'm exciting to interview you because you're amazing. So there's my little parallelism, I suppose, right there. I'm, I'm feeling two different, completely opposite emotions as we get ready to chat. Perfect. Kate, yeah. Kate comes to us from Nova Scotia. Uh, I was in Nova Scotia about three years ago. I've not been to the town where she lives, but I've been to, to Nova Scotia, Halifax, and up to Prince Edward Island a few years ago with my wife. And a beautiful part of our world. I'm excited to hear a little bit more, Kate, about your upbringing there. Yeah. Um, she's an internationally acclaimed writer, as I mentioned. She writes children's novels. She's a photographer. She's um, had a very good life up until uh, about 2007 when you had your twins, and we're going to talk a lot about that today as well. Um, sure. She's started an organization called Glow in the Woods, which is, uh, to my knowledge, the first online platform for bereaved parents who have lost a child or, or I think it's probably expanded out a little bit from what I've read. Excited to hear more about that as well. I've done a lot of research on Kate. I, I first came across Kate. I listen to a lot of podcasts, as you might imagine. My favorite podcast is called Good Life Project by a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Fields out of New York. And I listen to him. I think I've heard every one of his podcasts many, two or three times. And I heard her last year on, on that podcast. And I just took a took a shot reached out and she reached back and so here we are today so kate thank you so much for joining us today from i don't know what four thousand miles away or wherever wherever we are yeah about that yeah, yeah thank you for having me so i take it you're sitting up in the uh third floor of the uh the old sea captain's house in, <laughs> in nova scotia right now i read on a um a website recently about uh, the house i think it was an apartment you know about where apartment therapy work. Yeah, yeah tell me about this place this sounds amazing it's great. It was the forever dream home of uh, a Captain Bachman. And like, like all the money made on the South Shore, he made his money rum running during the Prohibition era. So he would um, fill his, his schooner with uh, salt cod and sail down to Bermuda and sell it all there, fill up with rum and scoot back up the Eastern seaboard get rid of the rum in Boston uh, discreetly. Discreetly, and of course, yes. Back home with, with, a, with a schooner full of cash and um, hopefully evade the, uh, the cops on the way. And so, so there's, there's a huge history here, particularly where I live in, in the little sort of hamlet where I live, um, that this place was built with rum running. And there's all these sort of great big captain's houses that are, that are sort of dotting the shore. And um, a lot of rich history. You know, that was kind of our, at least in the way that we think of piracy, if we don't count, I suppose, modern drugs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. It was kind of our last, our last golden era of piracy in, in Nova Scotia. And of course, we were among the first as well. So, yeah. How long have you lived in this home? Just three years. Yeah. So, so it's fairly new to us and, and she's, she's a big one. So it's, it's, um, it feels, you know, I think when we find a new home, it's new to us. It's, 
we 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 are it, we are we care for it. It's not necessarily ours, but we get to participate in the life. Be the steward over it at this point. That's the word. Yeah. So so we're doing our best to um, to earn our earn our place here. Well, I've noticed on your Instagram that it seems like you guys are constantly doing something, improvements or building or or. Yeah remodeling or redecorating or whatever that's excellent sounds great it sounds like a wonderful place to work and to be creative it's great yeah, excellent so tell me a little bit about i know a little bit about your early life and you know a lot of your story that we're going to talk about today stems from a pretty significant challenge i would imagine that uh, that you and your husband have, have gone through but can you walk us up a little bit prior to that? Just about, tell me, and I've heard you say your life was pretty good. I mean, you didn't really have that many challenges. Reminds me of me quite a bit that I too was raised with just everything I needed, everything I wanted. What was life like? Where did you grow up? I know you grew up in Nova Scotia, but where is it in relation to where you are now? Yeah, not far. I grew up in Halifax, which is the capital city of Nova Scotia, um, but still very much a small place. And I think, you know, we don't really know how fortunate we are until everything blows up. Especially if you've had what I would call a fairly uneventful life in the sense that, um, you know, we weren't particularly well off, but we were never hungry. And my parents loved me and, and my brother and, and we had good friends and we didn't get very many elaborate vacations, but when we did spend time together, we were often sailing or, just doing little road trips and we just have lots of happy memories. And I grew up around all four of my grandparents until gosh, I was probably well into my twenties before they started to move on to whatever's next. And um, we're going to so, go, by the way, <laughs> we're going to talk about that a little bit. I know we talked before about it. And so I'm eager yeah. to have that conversation with you. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I, I felt like my life was, was um, very ordinary and a very blessed kind of a way. Um, and then my second pregnancy, I already had a two and a half year old son and I was pregnant with twins and um, it, it went terribly. I was six months along and went into labor and rushed into the hospital for a crash C-section. And what followed was two months in neonatal intensive care. Um, ben was two pounds and Liam was two pounds, nine ounces. So if you can imagine a Canadian stick of butter, not an American. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I have a visual. Yeah, yeah. It's not the little skinny ones. It's a big one. Okay. A pound of butter. It, it was sort of about that size with little teeny tiny arms and legs the size of a man's thumb. Wow. So so it was a real shock and, and so Ben survived and Liam died when he was six weeks old and his body was the first dead body that I had ever seen. Wow. And his death was the first witnessing that I had ever done. I, I, was, I lived far away when all of my grandparents passed away and so I wasn't close to that process that is so much a heart process, but that is also a lot of logistics. You know, when someone becomes ill and you need to support them and you need to liaise with doctors and make sure that their affairs are in order and make sure that they're comfortable and that their pain is eased and all of these things, I, it was all so far from me. It was all sort of this abstraction until, until it was my babies. Then it was smack dab in your face. So you went from, yeah, it's a thing yeah. and I recognize it, but I'm not part of it day to day to, 
you couldn't become more part of something like this, the loss of a child, I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah, and so that was 13 years ago, which is hard to believe. I don't have any babies anymore. I just- Were they identical twins, Liam and Ben? What's that? Liam and Ben, identical twins? They were, yeah, so- If you look at Ben, you see Liam. I do, I do, but it's almost like there's, there are three, you know, if, if, if there is such a thing as sort of these parallel universes where things went in a different way, um, you know, there's, there's one universe, which is the universe now where Liam died. And there's another universe where he survived his injuries, but was extremely disabled and lived a life of pain. And then there's another universe where I never went into early labor and everything was fine. And I have two identical younger 13 year olds. Right. And so when I think about, you know, what if he had have lived? See, that's a rough one because he was so profoundly injured. And, you know, the NICU is a fascinating place because we don't know why some babies rally and some babies that look like they're probably going to be okay turn out to, to not make it. Yeah. Um, because we're not dealing with babies, we're dealing with fetuses as the doctors explained to me. And sure. the mystery of how they heal, what the tripwires are, and the doctors really are just kind of, well, let's try this today. And, and so it, it's, it's definitely a question, when you hear the term playing God, mm-hmm. a lot of the time when we talk about things like euthanasia or any of the other number of things that are such impossible ethical conversations, um, these, these are daily questions in the NICU. Um, because most of the time when it comes to premature babies, we are playing God when we intervene to try and pull out every stop so that they keep breathing. Right. Because we, we do what we want. We want them to be healthy and alive. We want them, we yeah. want them to be alive. And, and also, you just never know. So they have to try. But, right. but there's a big question of ethics in the NICU because a lot of those babies, it's a terrible thing to say, but a lot of them weren't meant to necessarily survive because they're so injured. And th- th- it sounds tricky for me to use those words, but... Um, but what it meant was that when he died, as painful as it was, I was somewhat reconciled to it because he had already died in my belly and they brought him back aggressively. Okay. And there's a part of me that's like, you know, he, he, he sort of was already gone and, and they did chest compressions on a two pound baby for 10 minutes to get him to register barely on the scale of oh, like- probably very difficult to watch. Well, I wasn't conscious, <laughs> so, but I, the nurses tell me that it was the worst thing they've ever, that it was, that she was completely traumatized by watching their birth, which was an interesting moment because there was a part of me that when she told me that quietly, sort of a couple of weeks after Liam died, I sort of thought, wow, like there's something very, very, um, there's a muscle memory there for me um, that's, that's really unusual and unexplained. And for the nurse to say, it was really bad. It was like, wow, thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because thank you for, the way for that giving it, that to sparing me as well because, because yeah. you were unconscious and didn't experience that firsthand. To be able to hear that from her as the mother, I'm sure that 
comfort may not be the right word that I would use anyway, yeah. but a, a peace potentially. He talked about that experience of that, that, that evening that he passed as being difficult yeah. yet illuminating. I'm quoting you. Um, yeah. There's that parallelism again. Um, can you talk about the difficult parts easy to understand? I think anybody who can hear this is saying, well, yeah, it's gotta be difficult, but what's the illuminating side? Well, I mean, it, it, it's, I'll try to make the answer as concise as I can. So I was brought up going to church every Sunday okay. um, in the Anglican church, which is like the high British church, big cathedral, singing in the choir with the big tall roughs and everything. Um, but my family was kind of pretty much there for the music. You know, like we, we never talked about the Bible um, at home. We never, we never even really spoke much about the theology of, 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 of the Anglican church. Um, we just loved the tradition. We loved, I think my parents just always felt like it's just a good thing to, to show up with your best on mm -hmm. every Sunday and so sing in a beautiful building with gorgeous stained glass and just have that pause to just sort of show up proper you know that's that's kind of the tradition that i come from but what it meant was that when this crisis happened by that time we had long ago kind of drifted from going every sunday and then all of a sudden we're teenagers we're busy and my parents uh didn't sort of push us too much so so i didn't really have sort of a theological foundation or or even any kind of particular philosophy you know philosophy for to immediately kind of lock into in terms of reconciling what was happening um the only thing that was the sort of immediate um instinct for me was to write uh, because i just felt like if i don't reach to find a shape for what's happening to me and to my children it's going to shape me in a way that is not necessarily on my terms so i need to find a way to see my son both of them as beautiful yeah is when you see a child that your body has so gravely injured you're not supposed to see a baby that has only been in your belly for 28 weeks right really 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 scary and 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 you don't get that sort of wreck you know that that lovely feeling of oh it's a baby yeah the, the, the beauty of childbirth and everything you see in the movies and in your own family and so forth sure very different yeah, and and that's the experience i had with my first baby um which was just you're tired but beyond that it's just you're just entranced whereas yeah. with, with liam and ben it was just horror absolute catastrophe and so so you get to that point and and i don't immediately go somewhere like oh it's god's plan or it's okay. Like I didn't have any sort of scaffolding right. um, with which to process what was happening. And so, so the night that he died, um, he had water on the brain and he, he had been deprived of oxygen a long time the day that he was born. And so he was just, um, everything was just so damaged. And I, I don't, I, I've never prayed in my life but they took the ventilator out because they knew that he was going to die. And they, they called, you know, they, they brought us in after we had just left because we had to go home and be home with our, with our toddler. And they brought us back and they said, he's, he's not going to make it. 
So you need to come in and we, we will make sure that you're here when it happens, basically. Yeah. Like that we want him to be with you. We want you to be with him. And so we went in and we, they took out the vent and then it was 12 hours of waiting for him to sync up his brain and his heart because he, he would stop breathing for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, but then his heart was still going slowly. Yeah. And so the nurse kept coming in and kept saying, I'm sorry, but he's not, he's not gone yet. And then he would sort of come up for air again, as if he were, you know, coming up from a long ways under the ocean and, and gulp. And it was just dreadful. I mean, just, you're not supposed to be okay with your kid not being able to breathe. Right. So. Yeah. Sorry, it, 13 years. I'm, I know. <laughs> I know we really went, went right yeah. into it, didn't we? So. I don't mind yeah. though, because, because it's, um, I'm, I'm totally okay with talking about it and I'm okay with, sometimes it affects me. And sometimes it, it doesn't in the sense that I can get through, like I've spoken about this in front of a thousand people, sure. written a book about it. Sometimes yeah. it bubbles up and sometimes it doesn't, but I never mind when it does. So it's okay. But, um, but the thing that is so fascinating that is something that I've really hung on to that's a wonderful mystery is that 12 hours in, he's on my chest and he had sort of gone, again, gone very, very still. And, and I, I just... I didn't think of it. I just, I spoke aloud to the room and I just said, please. And it was just like, like wow. the room was suddenly occupied. At that moment, my husband had, had gone to the washroom or gone to just take a break or something. It was just a really long haul. And so I was alone in the room and I said, please. And it was like something had been waiting for me to. All you had to do was ask. Something like that. And, and, and all of a sudden it was just there, like right up against us. And, and I said, please take care of my baby. Hmm. And the moment that I said it, I felt hands reach, like he was on my chest like this. And I felt hands pressing under and lifting him up. And I felt his weight leave my body. Wow. And I felt a sense of joy. Like I describe in the book, it was like that feeling when you haven't seen someone for a long time and you're in the airport. And you see them and you yeah. see them coming towards yeah. you and you say, hi, where have you been? And, and they smell kind of different because they've been in Europe or they've been wherever and they've got stories and they've got presents in their suitcase. And, and it's just a wonderful reunion. You are a writer, boy, in every sense of the word. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's the feeling that I had, but it wasn't my feeling. It was, some, it was like witnessing another person's. Yeah. And it was just a feeling of like, of, of reunion and then this is all within a couple of seconds and then it was gone and it was and then the room was empty again and I thought I think he's gone and I called the nurse in and she had already come in through the night you know several times and I said can you can you see if he's gone and so she put the stethoscope to his back and she listened and she listened and she said yeah he's gone he's he's gone now and I was like, yeah, I know. But I had no way of knowing right. because he, he hadn't been breathing. So the but moment his that heart- experience, That experience is really what defined it for you. Yeah. That's, that's when you knew that he was- Something took him. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you, at the time, I, I wouldn't have identified myself as an atheist. I also wouldn't have identified myself particularly as a Christian. I mean, right. a really big word. Both of those that's words- Both really, really definitive words, yeah. 
Right. So I didn't, even when it happened, I wasn't like my baby is with the angels or Jesus came or God, or I just, it felt like it was. You didn't hear the hallelujah choir and everything. No, no, I didn't have that. Again, I didn't have that scaffolding. I didn't have that language kind of already set up. And so when it happened, I sort of, it felt like it was mother nature. It felt like it was older than God. And I realize if I'm speaking to an audience of people that are already kind of in that space, they might be like, no, 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 that's, that's God. Like people hear what they, what, From what, our paradigm. what scaffolding already tells them. Yes, and, exactly. you know, and again, my atheist friends will kind of very kindly, even though it doesn't sound kind, but I don't mind. They've kind of said in the past on, on talking about this, don't you think that was just all in you? Like, don't you think that was just your emotion in the moment? And I, and I was like, no, it wasn't. Because I had no way of knowing that that, that was, there was no sort of, and then he stops breathing. Like there was no, I, there, I had no way of knowing. He, he, would, he would not breathe for 20 minutes at a time throughout the night. So, so it's a wonderful mystery. And I guess I feel like for a couple of years after he died, and you know, I don't think I'm the only one that's had unexplained sorcery <laughs> that has kind of surprised and come up. And but I felt very much accompanied, and I felt like he was accompanied, and and it's it's puzzled me. And and I've I've done everything I can to sort of resist putting a name on it mm-hmm. because I don't need to. And um, but whenever, yeah, I just I really like thinking on it. it yeah. It, it feels like a gift. So that's that's the very long story. And for well, for a couple when, of years after he died, it felt like a window was open. Like like whatever whatever that was, if it was, you know, I, I used to imagine it like it's Mother Nature, but she's like dripping in seaweed and salt, mm-hmm. and she's got little spiders all over her, and she's just sure. this beautiful ancient thing that just this energy that unites all of us. And 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 I I felt like that window to that energy was open. I just felt really kind of illuminated is the word that I used for a couple of years. And I felt like I could sort of, I felt like I was in conversation for a good couple of years after that. And, and, and of course, that connection has gone 13 years later, has all the edges of everything have softened, including the tapping into that. Yeah. Um, I'm that okay even the that. pain for them, I mean, the pain will never go away. But the, the edginess of the pain, to your point, it's yeah. much softer. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, and it, yeah, the whole thing is extremely humbling and makes me. I think of it now as just, it's it's my connection. You know, it's not necessarily my connection to Liam that I think about. Although, of course, I do. Right. The the something that's even more powerful is the connection to all the other mothers and fathers that have held babies as they pass. Yeah. Connection to all of us in terms of figuring out how do we get through loving each other so much and wanting so much for each other when we are the only animals on the planet who know that that we only have so much time. Right. But we don't know how much. Yeah, we don't know what that what that finish line looks well, like. Yeah, that's that's our, our sort of the riddle of our sentience, you know, that's that's, we're, we're pretty clever, but the, the price we have to pay for being this clever, for being this self-aware sure. is that it's not a matter of instinct, like a deer 
running and darting when they hear something. We have more than instinct. We, ha we have the ability to mull over concepts like how long do we have and what is happiness and, you know, midlife crisis and yeah. that kind well, of thing. Well, every silver lining has its cloud and every cloud has its silver lining if you look at it both ways. Right, right. So many, so many questions come up for me and I've got three pages of notes that I might not even look at because mm -hmm. I probably won't. When you and I first spoke and we got into a really good conversation and I, I shared with you the other night that I, I, I almost wish that I could record the, the original phone call when I talk to a guest because oftentimes that goes so well. It's like, man, I just want to recapture that. Yeah. As you talked then and as you've talked now, I, I pick up a very strong vibe from you that there is a belief that even you're still ironing out. And I'm not, you know, I'm Christian. We've talked about this and this is not where I'm going. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not here to try to tell you about who God is and so forth. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a personal journey for all of us. My wife and I always talk if, if we were raised in Iraq or if we were raised in Rome or we were raised in Halifax or raised in Orange County, California, where we were, our perception will be based on, not just on the parents that raised us, but really the geography. Because it, you know, people have their beliefs based on where they were raised. So I get that. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating to me that you say you were raised in a church and you were not the, you were the go for the music type of, you know, experiences. Yeah. So I've had about five questions go through my head already just as I'm talking right now. I guess I'm going to go first to your parents on this experience. Um, they, they took you and your siblings to church. So obviously there was something that they wanted to ingrain in their children, maybe other than just, hey, it's Sunday and it's what the community is doing, which sounds like there was some of that. Yeah. Um, what's their perception from when you talk to them about, if not that night with Liam, just the process? What can, what can you share about conversations you may have had with them? I feel like they took us to church because they wanted to instill in us our British lineage. Okay. And it had nothing to do with God, Jesus, the Bible, theology. Uh, but but it goes, it's bigger than that because as I sort of mentioned, I touch on it briefly in the book, but like my parents never told me to not mess around with boys. They never told me to not smoke. They never told me to not drink. And I, perhaps that's because I was pretty green <laughs> like as a teenager yeah. I had good yeah. marks in school and I was I, I didn't particularly act up so they they were never really pushed up against the wall in that sense but um they my parents always just kind of led by being who they are they were just they are they're still they live just up the shore from here but they they are profoundly hospitable people that are endlessly curious and interested and cheerful about the world um, and they're also, you know, I think the through line for them is in their parents and in their parents' parents. And in knowing all of these stories that of all these hardworking, lovely, flawed people who all had these incredible adventures, um, whether it's, you know, bombing Berlin uh, to get one of Hitler's speeches canceled, or we have an American president in our family, uh, William McKinley. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so, you know, my, we, my dad's always been really interested in history and our, our background and, but also the personal side of that and the personal stories. And so I feel like church for them was just because it's what you do. Right. And I think in Sorry. the Anglican church and the British tradition, at least 
from my experience of it, you go for the music, you go for the tea, mm -hmm. you don't really talk about the, the theology yeah. sort of Monday through Saturday. Right. It doesn't it really sort of come up in life, at least, you know, I think maybe in some other sects, uh, like other Protestant sects, I think there's more of a, uh, more of an ongoing or a daily or a call to prayer, uh, maybe Catholics are more like that. Um, but yeah, for us, it was just like, you go to see people, you, you sing in the choir, you, um, and it was just a tradition that we all really enjoyed. Yeah. But like my parents never, they never sort of talked at me about anything. They were just always super invested and they still are They're, They sort of want to know everything. Sure. And in a really like kind of a way, not in a, not, not in a philosophy, but just loving and supportive and you're yeah. there. And, yeah. And, and our, our sort of our most important thing, like I said, was kind of our lineage, our family and food was a big thing and, and how we come together around food. Um, and the importance of certain kinds of respect and certain kinds of, you know, and how you show up in, in your language and your, your um, treatment of other people. And so really my parents always just embodied small C Christian values just without, without the Bible, I guess yeah. you could say. Lived a Christian so, life without calling themselves Christian. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. And Can so, you, uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say when, when Liam and Ben, kind of landed in the hospital again they, they didn't have much to say about it like in terms of rationalizing it or here's how you should think about it or look to this uh particular as a plan a lot of people would say sure yeah but or, or trying to even fix how i felt like they, they never sort of said you really need to like hmm. look at this in a particular way or you need to not be so sad or they never said boo about that but they just showed up and they scrubbed in, you know, they, yeah. they, rolled, they literally rolled up their sleeves and they were like, we want to hug our grandkids. Yeah. Without even flinching, without blinking, they were just there and always proud and always smiling. And that's like my parents just kind of always taught and parented by just showing up like that. Yeah. How, what have you learned about grief through this process? And how do you look at grief maybe differently than you might have or <laughs> how you might have thought you would have? I never thought about it before it happened to me. Sure, you got this, you know, yeah. fairy, not fairy tale, but close to fairy tale life, much better than many. Well, I mean, I think we all, we, we are all unaware of something until um, it happens to us, right. I guess. And so, and so, I mean, and even the kind of grief that's like a grandparent dying, even though it's a grief, it's, it's a part of the cosmic order. It's expected. Yeah. You know, like, well, they're 89 and you know, they're 92. They had an amazing, beautiful life full of love. And gosh, we wish, we wish they could stay forever and be healthy and happy. And, but it just doesn't work that way. And we know right. that. But when, when you encounter a grief where you lose a love really too soon or before that person has had a chance to live, um, I guess I feel like the, the biggest lesson probably about grief is that we don't know how to face it. And we don't know, especially in the West, how to abide with those who are in it. We have 
we, we can be very domineering and, and sort of overbearing in our urge to quote unquote help sure. people that are in grief. And in doing so, which is why I sort of founded Glow in the Woods, mm -hmm. we end up inadvertently hemming in people in grief and not letting them feel what they feel. Um, so, and we don't end up doing enough listening. We end up coming on them with our, with our scaffolding saying, look, this scaffolding is great for me. Here you go. Let me place mine on you because it worked for me. Yeah. And you yeah. might not work for me. And it's in the best of intentions, but it just, it generally doesn't help. And so I think the thing that the most important thing that I learned is that it's never the wrong thing to say, I don't know what to say, but man, like, tell me how you're doing. Like, really tell me how you're doing. And if that person doesn't want to talk, they'll, they might say, yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm getting through. Then you just say, yeah. good on you. I just, you're on my mind. Yeah. And, and if, and if you have opened something up and given them some space, and if they're in the mood to say, you know what, I'm not fine. I'm really not okay. Then you can just sit with them. And that, but, yeah, you know, that's this in your, the biggest lesson I think that I learned. I read in your book, um, and I want to ask, I've been wanting to ask you about this since I read it months and months ago. What, and I'll just, what's the best thing that people have said to you early on, 13 years ago when you lost Liam, over the process, thousands of times you've had conversations with people about your, your journey. Yeah. Um, what's the best question or the best comment you've heard from people? Here's your chance to maybe coach a few people because we've all been through, we've all had loss. And again, your scaffolding may not work for the person listening to this today, but what sure. helped you the most? Well, I think the one thing that works all the time, but some of us are a little clumsier at reading the cues than others, is to meet someone where they are. I love that phrase. Yeah. Um, so one of the biggest moments for me, I, I did write about in the book, where I had gone to Frenchies, which is one of our, our maritime, uh, lovely sort of a thrift shop, basically. Except it's, it's, it's kind of a phenomenon in maritimes. And so I was in Frenchies with Ben, wearing him in a Mai Tai. And of course, when he, he was led out of the hospital two months old and he was five pounds. Okay. So when I would wear him in the Mai Tai, which is a little carrier that you kind of just strap him to your chest, which is just um, right here. He was just, he didn't even look like a real baby hmm. because he was so tiny. Right. Um, and I was in Frenchies, just one of those errands that you make up for yourself when you have an infant that you just need to kind of slowly yeah, walk yeah. Doing this with the grocery card and mm -hmm. sort of slowly walking the aisles and just kind of filling your days. And so I was doing that and a, a friend of my mom's uh, saw me and she came over. And she took me by the shoulders and she said, oh my God, I can't believe what happened to you. It's just terrible. How are you doing? I can't even believe it. I'm just floored. Look, there he is. But how are you doing? Like, Oh, like she was mad for me. Yeah. She was just really like, God, I can't get over it. What happened? What a shock. I'm just shocked. Are you okay? Like she didn't sort of, where so many people would see me and literally like. Yeah, the head turn, the they turn the other way or they try immediately go into fix it mode. Yeah, because they would think, you know, they see me and they just think like, dead baby. And they would, they would just run. And, and, and it was, that was so isolating because it was more comfortable for people to think of what happened as just a pregnancy gone awry. Yeah. 
it was a lot harder for them to think of, no, that wasn't just like a miscarriage, that was a baby. That was, that was a human life. Yeah. yeah. So they hit it head on. So it sounds like in your case, what worked when someone just addresses it and just, look, I, I'm really sad that this happened and I'm here. And, you know, I know I can't do anything, but just to, to be here to listen and to be here to yeah. tell you, yeah, it sucks. But that happened. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what she said. And, and it was really just a matter of opening that space between us. And no matter where I wanted to be in that space, she was cool with it. So yeah. I know that in that moment, I could just tell by her demeanor that if I was just, like some people, if you went up to them and you said, this terrible thing has happened to you, I can't believe it. Right. They might be like, look, I'm just trying to keep it together here. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. And I'm tired of people bringing it up. And, and, but I know that for her, that it would have been okay if I had just been like, yep, I'm just trying to soldier on. I just, I, I think can't. that's the fear. I that be down the, <clears throat> the fear that, excuse me. <clears throat> the fear that I have at times is that I, I might catch you in a moment when you're not thinking about it. And I, I bring it up and I take you back there. There really probably isn't too many, aren't too many moments where it's not, not that it's forefront of your brain and your mind the entire time, but. Yeah. When you're shopping and looking through things for a moment, you're having some normalcy. And then if I come up and say, oh, I'm so sorry, it's like, oh, I just took her back. So it's a, it's a tough decision. Yeah. In that. Yeah. And there's, interesting, there's an interesting distinction between going up to someone and saying, I'm so sorry, and going up to someone and saying, hey, you've been on my mind. How are you doing? Because somehow when you go up to someone and you say, you see them and you click in to what happened to them and you go up to them and you're like, I'm so sorry, like condolences. Because when you, you put condolences on someone, you are then demanding a certain type of exchange. A certain response you expect. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so and sometimes that's okay, but sometimes maybe that person, you know, so it, but it's, it's, it's more of a general touch in to just, I think, say, I'm so happy to see you because you've been on my mind. And I've just been wondering how you're doing. Are you good? Like, are you okay? Yeah. yeah. Excuse me. And in that <laughs> yeah, me too. There's some of we're both. Uh, <laughs> our yeah. For a minute. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if if that person is is in a space to say, boy, you know, I've really been I feel like I've been pulling every day up from the bottom of the well. Yeah. Or they might just sit, be grateful that like they know what you're saying. They know that that you're referencing what happened but you're not necessarily putting them in that space of please accept my condolences. Right. Because that is sort of an exchange that has some expectations attached to it. And again, it's really tough because sometimes that's totally appropriate. <clears throat> and yeah. a lot of the time, really the worst thing is to say nothing and pretend it never happened. Or the other side of the street and just ignore too. That's, that's the, that is just so isolating. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> you, you told me that you trust me and that you, you'll, allow me to take this a few places. So yeah. um, I'd like to go back. I want to ask you how Ben's doing, but I want to hold on in a, in a minute and do that if that's okay. And if you don't want to go there, I understand. Totally I totally get that. What's your belief system of where Liam is today? And this isn't the Christian asking you, trying to pull you my way at all, Justin. This yeah. is more, I'm curious, your belief system or your, you and yeah. your husband, Nick, right? Yeah. Um, I'm assuming yeah. you guys are somewhat on the same page. You guys seem from the little yeah. I've read and how you've talked that it's, you know, the, the, the chemistry is amazing. What, when you guys talk about Liam in your pillow talk nights and so forth, where is he? 
Well, this is a bigger story. <laughs> All right, cool. I'm ready. I'm totally okay with. But yeah. my so uh, Ben and Liam's dad and Evan, my older child, we split up. Mm, how many years ago? Like uh, eight years ago, I guess. Okay. He lives close by. We are super close, and he's an amazing person. Um, we just I think kind of struggled a bit after losing Liam and. It's that tough. Happens. That happens. The, the rates of this are, are Absolutely. Yeah. after after infant loss. It, it's tough. Um, so we we went in different directions, but we are still like super, super tight as a unit. Um, and then I was on my own for several years. And then I met Nick because like, I hope he's okay. I'm sure he's okay with me mentioning <laughs> the whole context of the story, but I was his wedding photographer in 2011. Okay. Um, and I didn't know this at the time, but he had married his wife when she was in remission from cancer. Mm. And then a couple of years after that, she passed away. Um, and then I sort of saw him again at a Christmas gathering and recognized him from the wedding that I had shot a few years prior. Sure. But I also knew that his wife had died. And I was just absolutely floored by that news, of course. And and so I went over to him and, and immediately was just, because you when you're the other person now, you have to be the comfort yeah, person. Rather that's than right. Company. Yep. Because yeah. when you shoot someone's wedding, it's the three of you all day long. Yeah. Like you are shadowing them. You see the love, you see the family, you witness everything. Like it's so, it's so intimate. It is. And so I had that experience of, of, of the two of them. And we immediately were sort of, we were sort of heads together and I was talking to him. He was talking about Jen and I was talking about Liam and he knew about that aspect of my story a little bit. So, you know, Evan and Ben and Liam's dad, Justin, we, we talk and we have our sort of shared experience that we have that is really, really um, precious, I think, to both of us in, in really unique ways. And then Nick and I have our own ongoing conversation based on him having lost his wife um, and having watched her just suffer and suffer and, and, and really struggle, which of course, a loss, all of our losses are so different, right? Sure. So Cancer is- We can both lose the same person and see it completely differently. Oh, there's so much. There's this sort of sudden cancers to the person who jogs every day and then two months later, they're gone. There's the 10 years of cancer that is just this exhausting, um, you know, painful thing for everyone. And then there's the accidents that take people. And then there's the, I mean, there, so even I feel like within grief, there's so many different ways in to healing. And there's so many different languages we need, like having an infant in the NICU is very, very, very different mm -hmm. from having a stillborn baby. Right. So, so it's the emotional attachment and everything too. It's just, it's yep. yeah. but I think really that the one thread, no matter what kind of loss or struggle that we face is how do we grapple with love and loss? How do we keep seeing the world as beautiful when there's, it's not fair. It's just fundamentally not fair to, yeah. to see a baby die. It's just bloody backwards. It's, it's awful. And it's also awful to see your young wife in pain. Sure. And it's also awful to have to say goodbye to a 92-year-old grandparent that was like a second mother for you. Yeah. You know, so 
it, when it all comes down, no matter what the logistics were, what the details were of that story, we all ultimately have to figure out how to carry love forward mm -hmm. when, when people are sort of enter into our life and leave our life. And it's, it's that riddle that I really hope that the book notes for the Everlast, I really hope that it kind of helps people to find those common threads with each other and realize um, that they can help each other sort of figure out their own scaffolding and that we can figure that out with each other. Yeah, that's done that for me because from the time I read it, um, we've lost a brother-in-law, we've lost a parent and then another parent, my mom and my wife's dad, um, a couple of friends have died by suicide. Um, and then just friends who have lost loved ones. It happens all the time. And now with the, the COVID crisis and with all the things going on in our world today, um, there's, there's, there's tremendous loss. I, I'm, I, um, I don't know if I heard your answer about where you think he is now, but I get, I get right. that you, the journey is amazing. Yeah, go to the next question or I drag her back and, and answer, ask that question again. Yeah. And, the, so, so where I am now, I think I, 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 I grew up not religious, but attending. Yeah, spiritual and, is a word you and I have used before. Sure, but I wouldn't even say spiritual okay. because going to church every week was not spiritual for me. True. It was just tradition. It was British cathedrals. Checking the boxes. You know, yeah, excuse me. And then there was a long period of my life that I didn't, it sounds funny to put it this way, but I didn't need spirit Got because it. my life was just chugging along. I was having a great time. I was in my twenties. I was kayaking and skiing and living out West in Vancouver and having, you know, developing my career. I had gotten my degree and, and, and having a lovely time and sort of in that very sort of dumbly fortunate way. Um, and then boom, Ben and Liam happen. And I had to think about like, wow, what do I believe? Because I've generally been kind of blank, just kind of blank. Like I wasn't, there is not no- like cruise control, but not really having to think about it because it wasn't yeah. faced. Yeah, like the, it wasn't that there is no God, but it also wasn't that there, there is God. It was really just, um, I love the way that, that that a, that a polished pew smells. <laughs> you know, I love the light through the yeah. glass. I love the old carols. Um, so they died. And after that, I started to more actively curate. How do I feel about this? So writing was a big part of it for me. And I started, I, I think my instinct initially was to say, okay, well, where I want to start in terms of how I process this is let's say that all there is is dust because everyone I knew, most people I know in my circle are, are, are do not attend church. Like okay. for whatever reason, um, where I live and oh, my to parents, the upbringing and where we are and that we tend to be a product yeah. of our environment sometimes. Yeah. So, so most people my age don't, don't attend and, and um, my parents still go and I still go, you know, my dad, like, arranges music for the choir. So every now and then I'll sort of go for a Remembrance Day service or something that he's doing. Um, but I, I didn't, you know, none of us are particularly drawn to go to church, at least not right now. Um, so 
I, I guess that's where I, I, I wanted, my instinct was to begin with the most brutal doubt. Mm -hmm. And that was my baseline was to say, okay, so let's say there is nothing. Let's say all there is is dust. And then of course the first place my brain would go was something took Liam. So it can't. That's what I was thinking is that experience. I mean, yeah, it's just head around that experience. Yeah, but it didn't feel like God to me. It didn't feel like anything that you'd find in a church. So I just, I, I think for me, my church was writing and, and sort of coming up with, with finding, you know, finding the shape of that story for myself. And, and a while after that, I started becoming interested in atheism, um, only in the sense that I enjoyed hearing people talk about it. Um, so I would listen to podcasts and read books and, and um, I think I found myself very much drawn to the kind of science-based mysticism that is kind of like, look at all the marvelous, incredible vastness of what we don't know. Like we know so much, yeah. but we don't know so much more. And the sort of Neil deGrasse Tyson, like the, I go into a planetarium in New York City and I'm just weeping and weeping and weeping. <laughs> and I know that I'm thinking of Liam right. because I'm thinking of scattering his ashes in, in the Everglades. And I'm thinking he's in the belly of a turtle. He's, he's mm -hmm. in the ecosystem again and, and that we're all connected and that all of us are trees and all of us are birds. And, and, and I realize how woo-woo this sounds, but it is sort of physically true and physiologically true that we are essentially, uh, you know, this, this mashing, roiling, great big sort of ecosystem of carbon that keeps recycling itself in various forms. Yeah. And, and that to me felt very, very sacred and beautiful. Um, but I think lately, and, and, I, and I feel like that's kind of the space I was in when I wrote Notes for the Everlost. So I've had a little bit of feedback from people that are more definitively religious that felt like there were aspects of the book that were not religious enough for them. Or there were aspects of the book that were like a little bit more, uh, what's the word? Like a little too aggressively looking for something in nothing, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I absolutely defend that. I think it's really important and, and also really beautiful for me. And so I, I hope that that tone came across. But it was never sort of an anti-religion. Like I've never, I, I'm not, like I do have friends that are like, I would never set foot in a church because maybe they were brought up in a really hardcore pressure kind of family environment or something. But that's never, ever, ever been me. Um, and just recently, I've actually been because of tradition and thinking of lineage and thinking of all the people that came before me. There's a United Church just up the road on the seashore here and it's just very small and very sweet. And I've lately been thinking like, wouldn't that be nice on a Sunday morning to bring a mug of tea and go to the church and sing some carols and just kind of be in that space and have that moment to reflect. And, and so I feel like I've done a little bit of a full circle from you know, I feel like I will start going back to church at some point, but because of where I was born and the family I was born into, I don't necessarily see 
there's not it's not necessary to call it one way or the other you're not me. drawn back to it you're more looking at what could be or, or um you're evolving and evolving is the wrong word yeah. and i, I, I want to edit that one out um it's not an evolution as much as it's just a process like you say and we're all on a journey and if yeah. you told me if you'd have told me when I was 18, the, the, the religious and spiritual journey I was going to go on, I would have said, okay, sure. Let's yeah. drink that, you know? And now if you tell me what my next five years are, I'll probably believe you because I've, I've been through so many different transitions in my own belief system that, um, I mean, I know what my core is. I know where my belief system is, but the, the, the changes in philosophy and how we educate and how we learn, I have no idea what the next five years look like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good, it's good to be open in that way, I think. Yeah. And, and I think for me, a big part of it, we, we sort of made our pact over email before this to not get into it. And I, I don't, right. I'm not saying we should, but yeah, there's so much turmoil in the world right now and so much uncertainty. And I think that is honestly playing a role for me in terms of how to make sense and, 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 and the fact that tradition, I think, is being a little bit lost in the shuffle, whether it's the internet age or, I mean, there's great things about the internet age. Here we are having a conversation. Exactly. It's also just this sort of moment where everything is coalescing, where we have not really sure what we can trust. And there's so much information, but so much of it is kind of hollow. And there's so many influences on our kids. And we have so much power, but so much uncertainty and and there's a lot of narrative being pushed and there's a lot of political stuff being pushed and and my gut instinct in that is just i want to keep going down the path that everyone who came before me went down that i feel like i'm missing some of that tradition i miss i miss the way a church smells an old church and i i I feel such a gratitude when I go into that old church and they have the names of all of my little hamlets, World War I and World War II veterans, like on the wall. Yeah. And they went to that church. They walked up the road on the yeah. shore before I they left. History, you have that, 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 uh, yeah. that emotional tie to, to history. Absolutely. And so I feel like I've been kind of missing that. And, and I, I, I miss my grandparents right now. Like I, I think almost daily, when I think, when I see the world unfolding and I see what's happening, I hear my grandfather's voice and my grandmother's voice and my other grand, like all four of them and, and, and how they would see this and what they would tell me and, and, and what their prescription would be yeah. as, as that generation, you know, our best generation as we often call them. And, and, and it makes me feel a little bit of sort of generational shame and it also makes me feel inspired at the same time to just find more quiet, quiet productivity in my life and just keep generating, keep building and keep, keep up with the hospitality. You know? Yeah, my dad's 93 and I um, often just want to sit and just listen to his, you know, growing up in the, in the depression and serving in World War II. And just, yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm mind boggled. I was born in the 60s, and but you know, he was late 30s when I came around. He had had this whole life <laughs> already, you yeah. know, think of me in my 30s and feeling like, wow, I'm so old. Now I think back at 30s and like, wow, that was so long ago. Yeah. How are your boys and what do you envision for them? What, what as a mom now, you, you get to give a little mom's blessing, if you will, 
to your boys now? And then the second question is, how's Ben? I'd love to hear his perspective of having lost a twin that he was with technically for 11 months, the nine months and then the two, and how mm -hmm. that's impacted his life moving forward. First of all, what, what do you hope for them? And then how's he doing? I hope, you know, it seems a bit odd, but right now in the world, the thing that we are trying to impart the most, and by we, I mean all of us, like yeah. our extended family that includes, yeah. obviously their dad is like super amazing and, and like yeah. super connected and we're all super connected. But I think what we are all on the same page about, we're on the same page about everything, but the most important thing to me feels like I want to instill in them a healthy skepticism. Mm. That's the most important part. Don't be this kind of open-mouthed consumer for whatever the world is telling you about you, about who you are, about what the expectations are of you. It's, this is getting into some dicey territory, but the world nowadays tells young men that, you know, they are a certain thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't agree. So, it's, it's for me, I want them to grow up and understand compassion and understand masculinity for themselves and come to terms with who they are in a way that is healthy and in a way so that as they now have phones, they now have access to the world through this kind of insane avalanche, right. is, you know, the digital life. I want to send them out there saying, be skeptical, be your own free thinker. Trust so, but verify, as we've heard people say. What's that? <laughs> Trust but verify. Something like that, yeah. To just not don't buy into all the all the narratives. Like just be be very take a pause. Like don't just be don't be like all of us, just reacting, 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 reacting all day long. Just pause. Just take it in. Find sources that you that feel like they're sort of aggregating sort of balance yeah. and but otherwise just be sort of like just be guarded like guard your 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 heart guard your soul and and i think if we can learn to do that how to kind of just walk lightly through that <laughs> minefield just yeah. just learn how to step lightly so that you can come out so that you can figure out in that minefield how to 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 self-create and self-generate a life that feels steady and well-rooted in, in the knowledge of the self and in, the, the, in being kind of plugged into others in a way that is um, instinctual and, and good. When you're raising them in an area where that's a little bit easier than perhaps maybe where I am in the hustle and bustle of Southern California versus we have read about, you know, in magazines and other sites where I've read more about you and talked with you a few times you're in an environment where maybe, I mean, because of the hustle and bustle on the iPhone and everything, we can access everything in the world instantaneously, whether I'm in Nova Scotia or, or Los Angeles, California, but the pace around us definitely contributes to our ability to step back and reflect. And I, I appreciate that. I think that's what this time frame, these three months now of quarantine and stay at home have done for me. And I've heard a lot of people and I talked to a, a, a wide variety of people from all over the world through this process, through the podcast and other things that we're doing, that most of us have used this as that time to really, it doesn't really matter where we live right now. 
my house could be in the woods in Nova Scotia right now because I'm in it most of the time. So it really doesn't matter where it physically sits today. And it's yeah. giving me that blessing of being able to pause and reflect and really process and um, contemplate what do I want for my grandsons? I have seven grandsons. And do you really certainly, seven? Yeah, and certainly I think about each of them individually and collectively several times every day and what do I want for them? And uh, they're, they're all young enough that they're not gonna be, I, I believe, negatively impacted and influenced by what we're going through in our society right now, but also old enough that they're, they are a product of the influence around us. And I, I love what I've heard people say, um, this is a time, and, and I'm sure that your boys are seeing this as well with, with you and your, your ex and with, with Nick and the relationship there, this is a time when our kids are gonna look back, in my case, grandkids and say, um, how were mom and dad or how were grandma and grandpa during this time of this great pandemic? You know, were they stressed about economy and were they constantly, you know, looking into the laptop at their accounts and their money and were they stressing and worried? Or were they handling those things probably, but doing them differently, but still playing on the floor with me and playing video games with me and going on walks and, I get that your boys probably are getting a lot of you, maybe even more so now through this. Yeah, I mean, I, I work from home, so it's, right. it's, you know, and my husband does as well. Mm -hmm. And so we're just here a lot. Awesome. Like, I'm, we're just here, we're in their lives as soon as they, when school is on, when they come home from school, we're here. Um, but I feel like, you know, one of the biggest things for me is I just want them to keep talking to us. like. Yeah it's really important to me that around the dinner table that we have really honest enlivening conversations where we invite our kids into our processing of the world so that they can like we're modeling bumbling through yeah hopefully with some grace and hopefully with our own skepticism and with our own pause and with our own sort of critical thinking and we're very open in sharing that with them so that i hope they can develop those skills for themselves instead of just sort of absorbing everything they're being told and, and, and absorbing everything, you know, without, without just having the apparatus to guard their sense of themselves, you know, and their sense of what's in the future for them. You know what I think the key is to them continuing to talk to you? Continue to listen. Ah, uh, yeah. Continue to listen, continue to observe. I know listening, oftentimes we think of that as secondary because someone has to talk first. Yeah. We listen with our eyes more than we listen with our ears. Watch them, pay attention. I'm not giving advice, trust me. I'm the last guy to give parental advice here, but my observation from what I've seen with the companies that I work for, with the children and grandchildren and, and just people I'm around is really the key to get people to continue to talk is you first, you really first have to listen because they have to feel heard. They have to feel like, you know, they're, you're gonna act on what they tell you. You're not gonna react. You're not gonna get angry if they tell you something you don't wanna hear. You're gonna say, you know what, I understand why you may have made that choice. Let's talk that process through. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, no, there's no panacea that's simple and works every single time. But for me, the listening is key. Yeah, and I think sort of being interested in what they think about things. Yeah, exactly. Every now and then, it's not so much that they are just joining in on our conversation, but every now and then we'll kind of check in on them and just say, you know that thing going on? What do you think about that? Yeah. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, their opinion. Right there. Yeah. And our oldest in particular will kind of 
he'll be like, oh yeah, like here's, here's what I think. And he'll start sort of pacing. Like, you know, when you do that sort of walking meditation talking yep. and he'll kind of, he'll start like pacing back and forth and he's talking and he's, so it's, it's wonderful to kind of watch them find the words and, and to be like, wow, you know, like we, we really have very grown up conversations with them. I mean, they're 15 and 13, so sure. they're, they're ready to have those conversations. If they don't have them with us, then they're going to get them on God, God help us. They're going to get it on Tumblr. Get them from you. Yeah. They're going to, yeah. yeah. So, so it's better that, that, you know, that we just demonstrate that, that interest in, in what they have to say and what they think. Does Ben have those twin moments that you hear about? Um, ben, I think now that he's like, my, my instinct around Ben is to always follow his, his lead as much as possible. So I don't bring Liam up to him sure. all, all that often. Every now and then, like on his birthday, um, I might sort of say, like, we're all really, uh, actually, it was this year, I, I, I did it, and I thought, I feel like that's the last time I'm going to do that, because I just, I feel like his birthday needs to just be his birthday. Sure. You know, um, but every now and then I might just say, oh, and we're thinking of Liam today, too, and we all kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, and we all sort of have our moment, but I'm okay with him, like, when he was younger, it came out a lot more. Yeah. So, he, he would... Um, sort of think of Liam as being like his invisible brother and um, he would tell people about him and um, and and so it was really but but I think the way that we always were with it is he knew that I'm a writer and that I'm writing about it and and he knew that again like we I shared my process with them to a degree that was appropriate to their age so obviously when when, when Ben was four years old, I wasn't talking to him about death necessarily in the way that I would quite frankly talk Even to him. Even the way you would today, but in a, just a different way. Like you write, you write for a four to eight year old differently than you would for a 50 year old. Exactly. So but he's great. I mean, for a two pound baby, boy, we, we, mm -hmm. we, we, uh, we got, got out of the NICU by the skin of our teeth. You know, it's um, a lot of kids that are that little, um, end up with vision problems or learning problems or, or chronic lung issues. Sure. And he was just feed and grow. And he's, you'd never know that he was, that he was a preemie. So he's, he's great. There's a quote that is attributed to you that I love. And it is one that I really want to talk about. I, I don't want to keep dragging it back to grief and everything, but because so many people who are watching and listening, all of us have grief in our lives. All of us have had this experience and, Unfortunately, um, I've, I've heard our, our pastor and others say there's two types of people in the world, those that are going through a challenge and those that are about to. Yeah, it's just so we're all going to go through that. But you wrote, and I'm going to paraphrase without my glass. I'm going to try to read it without the glasses on. When we lose someone we love, we've got to relearn how to love, communicate, and abide with them with the mysteriously vanished. There's beauty and companionship in that learning. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that process for you? Well, when you're a mother of a dead child, you're still their mother. Yeah. But they're not here. Mm -hmm. I'm still my mom's son and she's not here. Yeah, that's right. So you have to kind of figure out how, how am I Liam's mother? How do you mother a child that's no longer with us? Um, you, you have to have a relationship to that presence in your life, even when that presence is absent. Um, you know, I'm sure that when your mother dies, 
you are still her son, but your relationship to her, it's not that it, it doesn't end. Right. It becomes a different kind of a conversation that, that you bring more inside yourself and it takes on its own life. And more and beautiful I, to a certain extent because I really only remember the good. That's right, of course. And I think it's just, it, 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 it can only be a good thing to care for that conversation. Um, like you would, uh, there's a piece that I just wrote in a, in a Buddhist magazine called Animal Husbandry for Dragons. Mm. And it talks a little bit about, you know, if you imagine grief as being this dragon that has kind of taken up residence inside you. And it's very uncomfortable for the dragon as well as for you. Neither one of us are where we want to be, yeah. Spitting fire and it's very hot and frightening. And it makes you spit fire. Um, and how, how do you acclimatize to one another when the dragon doesn't want to be there and you don't want it there? But here you are and it's there now and it's ne it can never leave. So Animal Husbandry for Dragons as a title is about this idea of you know, if we think about what animal husbandry is, which is the care of animals, right. which involves everything from brushing them and feeding them and making them clean, or helping them help themselves to be clean, to helping them die. And it, it is a bit of a messy business, <laughs> um, but you also have to make sure that dragon has a clean space. You have to make sure that dragon has room to roam without just hating it. You know, if you just hate that dragon, it's gonna, it's never gonna find peace inside you. Yeah. And it's going to torment you. It's going to manifest in bad decision after bad decision. It's going to get you stuck in a rut. Um, as opposed to, if you can learn how to look after that dragon, you know, we think about looking at, you have to look after your pain. And if you can figure out how to do that, then the pain, just turns into a kind of a heat that doesn't sear you, but it starts to become a generative heat, right? We would all die without heat. That's, that's the, the, yeah. the, fir the first indicator that, you, that you're gone is that you become cold, right? Yeah. So we need the heat of pain and we can turn the heat of pain, any kind of pain, into a generative kind of an engine that can be friendly inside of us, that can be okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I really believe in, in that practice. And some days I'm better at it than others. Um, but I think it has a lot to do with when you feel that kind of pain bubbling up, that, you, um, that you're okay with it bubbling up. It doesn't mean anything about you. And it doesn't, it's nothing to resent. It's nothing to hide from. It's nothing to you know, shove under a rug. It doesn't work anyway. So, yeah, you just kind of think of it as, I always try to think of it as kind of learning to cohabitate. Yeah, interesting. I appreciate that because that's a, it's an uncomfortable feeling that none of us want. It's a feeling we're all going to have. And to learn how to cope, coping isn't really the right word, to learn to coexist, to use your word, I think is, is, is good. I, I often think of these podcast conversations, I usually tell my guests at the beginning and I didn't today, but... Um, I, I try to think of this as just two friends having a cup of coffee and a conversation over coffee. And I feel like I want to order a second cup because <laughs> there's so many places we haven't gone yet. Yeah. Um, a couple of, can I just ask a couple of why questions? Yeah. Why do you write? Um, 
<laughs> Why do I write? Uh oh, I, career change. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just a it's it's my exercise. Some people, I look at them and I say, "Why do you run? <laughs> like that looks miserable." Yeah, why do you jog? They say jogging adds ten years to your life, but they don't tell you you're spending those ten years jogging. Yeah, you know, that's do right. that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I look at the jogger and I think I do not get it, but I know that when they're not moving and sweating and they're at home and it's been too long and they get that kind of titchy, like, like they get that sort of unpleasant sort of electric thing. And they're like, God, I just need to go out and like, I got to sweat. Yeah. And those kinds of people. And I, I guess for me, that's what writing feels like as if, if I go too long without, exercising my imagination i get titchy okay why did you start glow in the woods tell us about glow in the woods and then why did you start yeah. glowinthewoods.com uh, is a sort of a community very um a community for for bereaved parents generally of infants but of course anyone's welcome to kind of browse through it and it's it's a cohort of writers that kind of comes and goes depending on how they feel about the writing so it's very literary in the sense that it's not like personal blogs. It's not people telling their personal stories of loss. It's, it's kind of a springboard to help people think about all the different aspects of what happens when you lose a baby and, and life after that. So it's, it's women and men talking about everything from marriage to, you know, how do you keep going forward in your body when your body killed your baby? Like, and, and I, those are strong words. Right, so, right, right. It is. But as a woman, that's how it feels, is that your body let your baby down. Hmm. Um, and, and, and that's really tough. How do you go on and continue rejoicing in your body, taking it out for a run? How do you look after it when you're so angry at your body? So there's so much and there's religion. How do you grapple with what you thought was your unshakable faith after your baby dies. Um, so there's so much richness in terms of like, uh, that I think a lot of people after they have a loss like this, they become quite frankly insatiable for like, I wanna hear how other people are, are dealing with the dumb stuff people say to you, hmm. or how are people dealing with family members? How are people dealing with all the other babies that go on to be born perfectly ordinary right um when you are sort of that one person that medusa having to kind of endure it's a guilt you feel when everyone is helping in your neighborhood yeah there's so much so so glow in the woods basically i started up because i wanted to kind of create a place to just deal with the the isolation and the loneliness uh and a place where people could kind of not have to mince their words yeah but you know, because there's one way that you speak in mixed company, and then there's a shorthand that you can use with other people that have been through the same thing. So if you have someone in your life who committed suicide, um, you can talk about that experience in a way that you can't talk about it with anyone else other than other people who have also had someone commit suicide. So there's a shortcut there that can sometimes, you can just skip over all that stuff in the middle That's the case right as they say yeah. right to meet right yeah i don't need to hear your story you need to tell my story let's say your words or let's meet what do we do now what yeah. do we do now and yeah. and that's that's why glow in the woods exists yeah excellent now i've been on it a lot i love it i love the stories and the writings and so forth on there i won't go into the blog 
because we talked about that before, but you do have some pretty cool stuff. And I encourage anybody that has had any loss, whether it's a baby or a child or a loved one or a spouse or anyone. For me personally, there was a lot of therapy there. I read through a lot and, um, you know, loss of life the way we've known it prior to three months ago is a loss. It's not losing a baby, but it's a loss. Yeah. Dealing with loss is, 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 I think there's therapy there for all of us. I hope so. What's next for you? I know about a book coming up. You want to tell us about your new book and, yeah. and behind that? I have a new, so before, uh, Notes for the Everlost was my f fourth, fourth yeah. book. Fourth book, fourth book. Uh, so my first two were sort of- I want to get to the point where I can't remember what number book it is. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I'm a writer too, not like you, but I do love to write. Yeah, well, I first I wrote two sort of uh, middle grade adventure novels for kids, like for sort of 12 and up. Then I wrote a picture book, sort of a jokey, funny, silly picture book uh, for four to eight year olds. Then Notes for the Everlast came out, which of, co of course was adult nonfiction. Yeah. And this September, I have another picture book coming out that for me really feels like a, the timing is really lovely for, for everything that, that the world is going through right now. Um, it's called A Great Big Night. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, another picture book for four to eight-year-olds. And it's about um, these three frogs that travel through the woods and sort of give concerts to all the other animals, musical shows. And it's sort of about the healing potential in the community of the performing arts and the value of it. And um, I really feel like we need those three frogs right now so badly. Yeah. So that's coming out in September, which is really thrilling. And I've also just finished my first adult novel, which is, will it ever exist? I don't know. You know, you, you invest years of your life writing and it's with my agent right now and she will either do this or this yeah. <laughs> in terms of like, can I sell this or can I not sell this? And it's such a weird world right now in terms of literary aspirations. Um, it's very tricky for publishers to try to figure out what's gonna fly and what's not. Yeah. So my fingers are crossed. I'm hoping I should be hearing from her any day. And then if she likes it, then we embark on a long time. It's another journey now we're on. Hearing and hoping and submitting it to places. And so I really need to move on to whatever's next. And well, I hope um, your book tour brings you to Southern California sometime. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be, be awesome. Yeah, you talked a little bit before about that that nerve-wracking moment of hitting send when the attachment to the email is your book and it's going to the agent or the editor. What's that feel like? I mean, I know my feelings. I've done it a couple times, but and even with the podcast, all we're done here. I'll record, I'll, I'll edit it, I'll put it together and post it, and it's not quite the same. But there's still a little bit. I hope people like this, but at least with this, it's more. I hope they like Kate, and they're going to love you. I don't care if they like me; they're going to love you. But what's it like when you hit send on that? And now you're waiting for the feedback. You feel like you feel like a kid in the back of a car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are like we you there yet? Like, there you go. Like this annoying, like I'm kicking the seat. Like, have you started reading it yet? Have you started? Have you started? And all this time, the whole world didn't stop for my book because my world stopped waiting for you to read my book, right? Yeah. 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 yeah you just feel really super neurotic, and <laughs> your brain. You know, one day you'll think, you'll think you know, I think, I think it's pretty good. No, I think it's, I think it's good. And then the next day you're like, I'm the worst. I'm the worst human in the fireplace, right? That ever, like I couldn't write my way out of a paper bag, you know? And, and then the day after that, you're like, mm, I think it might be. Okay. 
Yeah. It might need some work, but I think it might be okay. And then the next day it all cycles through again. And so you just feel very sort of very neurotic and, and unsure. And, and, and right now I'm at the kicking the back of her seat. Kind of waiting <laughs> for the there right waiting, Trying so hard to be cool. Um, and just fingers crossed. And again, like I, it, it, there's, it's such a head game to be a creative person, to be a writer or a singer or a musician or to do anything where you are hoping to get that to be ordained as worthy. Uh, well, I'm, eager to get, I'm eager to get a great big home in my home because we have bedtime stories with our grandsons here and our, our grandsons that don't live here. So I'm very excited to get to get my autograph copy when that comes out. Yes, sometime. I'll be happy to send you one. I yeah. appreciate it, that. It's a very sweet, my, my first picture book is very sort of silly and boisterous. And this one is very sweet and poignant. And so I'm, and the illustrations are just, off the charts. So I picked up on that one last night. I was on your website. And so I gave blood a couple of weeks ago. And the American Red Cross right now, when you give blood, sends you a t-shirt if you want to. And I got mine in the mail yesterday. And I'm not wearing it now. But the t-shirt says, we're all in this together. So last night, I get my mail. I come home. I go upstairs. And I'm getting ready to just settle in to do more, a little bit more research about this conversation and a few other things to tie up my, my week. And I put the we're all in this together t-shirt on and then I go on your website and I'm scrolling down. I'm reading about your books and I'm reading about a great big night. And then I see this, this, this um, illustration that says, of course, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. I got chills. Uh, that was pretty cool. Great. So yeah, yeah it really applies to what's going on in our world right now too. We are all. Well, it does. The book, in the book, there's a big storm mm -hmm. and um, everything gets kind of destroyed. And so music is what brings everyone and rallies everyone back together to help rebuild. And um, that's, <laughs> that's where we are. Yeah, yeah now you're being neurotic, just waiting for the response. I love yeah, it. Yeah, well, well, I just, that's where we are in the world. Is oh, exactly, we, you're right. We have to figure out how to come back together again and, and how to move forward. And... I mean, what is it to even be positive nowadays? I'm not sure. What is it to listen? Because who do you listen to and how do we engage with each other? And it's, it's the world's in a lot of pain. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's I, yeah, the timing just feels right for this particular little story that, that it's, um, it's, it's a little, uh, hopefully a shot in the arm for, for, for joy. Well, we need more people like you who are doing things like that with that in mind. And I, I just, I really appreciate this time with you and I wish we could go another hour and maybe after we stop hitting record, we'll continue to talk or maybe we'll talk another time in the near future. I, I don't want to keep up with what, what's going on with you and, and with family and with your career. How, what's the best way for my listeners and viewers to reach you if they want to pick oh, up yeah. your books or get information to you or what have you? Well, the, it's, my website is just kateinglis.com. So, uh, and we're going to put that up when we post this podcast. We'll put that in the notes as well. Yeah, and we could put a few more links up. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. And um, there's, I've got a, an author page on Facebook. And so there's lots of ways to get in touch. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and to sort of stay up on the news as to when the books come out. All, all of my books are on Amazon and okay. available online. Yeah. So I have two last questions. Okay. First, second to last question is the essay question. Did, I, did we leave anything out? Is there any, there's so many places we could have gone. Is there anything that you hoped we would talk about that we didn't get to? 
Mm-hmm. You can just say no, that's fine. But you know, if there's anything that can someone we covered some some pretty great ground. We covered some ground. This has been amazing. I've enjoyed every minute of this. Yeah, likewise. All right, then let me ask you my final question. Yeah. Uh, the name of my podcast, you said it at the beginning, is from the heart. My last name is Hart. Uh, it has a multiple meaning to me. Uh, license plate on my car is a heart, the number four, fam biz, because I do a lot of family business work. That's my day job. Right, yes. Um, yeah. Most of the people I talk to are family business leaders and owners, not all, but most. Yeah. Um, so with that said, Kate Inglis, what's in your heart? Buttery crumpets. <laughs> what's in my oh, heart? Stomach. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's the joy of, of coming together with people and, and good conversation and delicious food and, 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 always finding my hope there. I think what's in my heart right now is, is just that affinity of breaking bread with people and knowing that even underneath all the turmoil that we see in the world right now, that we are all fundamentally seeking joy.